Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. I've been on the road for the last week and a half. I'm telling you, it's been, it's not been the last week and a half, for the last 20 days. I was in uh, Europe uh, from about the 2nd to the 12th, got back, and then jumped on a plane, ran up to Boston, got to see a lot of consumers up in Boston, and a lot of different dispensaries, people who have been supporting the brand. And um, then I tried to get back from Boston two days ago, and I'm telling you, I had the travel nightmare from hell. Good thing I had my vape pen, because if I didn't, I would have probably exploded at least two or three times. But, of course, because I was able to, to medicate and keep myself, you know, uh, res- relatively sane, I absorbed uh, that uh, crazy two-day delay in getting home. I went to the airport, got to the airport, I think, what, uh, Keith and I left. I got to the airport at 8.30, 9 o'clock. 9 a.m. Uh, on Tuesday morning, my flight got delayed five times. Didn't get off the ground until 5:30 at night. Got off the ground, got down here. Was getting ready. To come, you know, I'm flying to Miami, and so I get that ready to get to Miami. And um, thunderstorms at the Miami airport had shut down all arrivals, so we had to be diverted. So I got diverted to Orlando get to Orlando and um, absolutely insane because they diverted like almost 15 flights at the same time. So everybody was diverted to Orlando. And I'm telling you, the airlines were not necessarily, I, I will complain just slightly, they were not necessarily the most um, helpful to some. I But I have to say, I was very blessed. I ran into a, uh, one of the people who was a, you know, a, a gate agent and kind of pulled them aside and bum rushed them before they had an opportunity to say no. And the next thing you know, they were really taking care of me, got taken care of. However, I didn't get out of that airport until almost 1.30 in the morning. Didn't get to a hotel until 2.30 in the morning. Didn't get to bed. Then got up, had a flight rescheduled for yesterday. And that was even insane. Arrived at the airport on time. And that flight started getting delayed 15 minutes on a clip. And I was like, oh, no, please not again. But a but fortunately, I was able to get off the ground and get home. Uh, got in late last night. And I'm telling you, you know, that whole thing about travel and and travel nightmares and time zones, it's real. But I will tell you, the one thing that's the equalizer is your cannabis. I'm going to tell you that right now. I think um, in the last, well, I, I literally am a cannabis traveler. Um, either using before or right after I arrive in different locations. And that seems to help assuage some of the jet lag for me because immediately it'll let you get to sleep. When you get up, you know what I mean? It'll fire you up and get you up enough that, you know, the the jet lag doesn't hit me as hard as it could. But I'm telling you, this has been a rough couple of days. I'm trying to get my act together and so glad that I'm back and I'm glad that you're back. Listen, because I've got a really good show for you today. My guest today is a 20-year veteran to entrepreneurship. He's been doing so in experiences across design and engineering and precision manufacturing, brand development, corporate modeling, financial modeling, and multi-state international cannabis licensing. He's, uh, he first launched his business as a hemp brand and later obtained licenses to manufacture and distribute cannabis products. 
He is the co-founder of Franklin's Stash House in Missouri. Michael Wilson, thanks so much for being a part of the show today, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Excited to be here. Absolutely. Are you, you know, I, I, I was just sharing there at the beginning here, um, you know, how I kind of feel as if for me, I don't know, it might work for you or others, but I do believe cannabis is the great equalizer to jet lag. What do you think? Well, if you could have seen what my face looked like when, uh, while I was off camera, I was smiling when you're saying that. Cause you know, as the idea of a, a great equalizer, I mean, it's for a lot of people, including myself, that's exactly what it's like. You know, it's a unique product and very excited for it to be able to be studied more because, you know, it's like the longest peaceful protest in history. Clearly the people want it, uh, you know, and there's obviously value to it, you know, it's healing. And so it's exciting to be a part of that product and industry. It's there's value to it in hundreds, thousands of verticals, and especially when it comes to personal consumption. I mean, a lot of people, you know, I, I was having a discussion earlier today with a friend who's talking about the difference between rec and medical. And I say, and I say this and have said this since day one, for the last 22 years, I've been saying this, that there isn't a difference between medical and what we call recreational. Those who come to cannabis and choose cannabis over any other type of, let's say, euphoric inducing uh, medication are doing so for a probably a medical reason, even if they won't admit it themselves. If they say they're doing so because they want to relax, medical. They say they're doing so because when you come home from work, you know, you get to ease some of the aches and pains, medical. You say, you know, uh, you're doing so because you want to help you sleep, medical. So truth of the matter, I think, and if you're even just doing so because you like the way it makes you feel after, you know, having one of those anxiety-ridden days and those kinds of things, that's medical. Even if you well, sure, stop. I mean, even look at our time frame of, of where things have become from what we discovered from emotional development, what we discovered, you know, from just the endocannabinoid system, you know, that wasn't even discovered till the late eighties and nineties. And now we're starting to understand how that's affecting emotions. And I love the part that you, you bring up is that there's far more management than just, you know, even aches and pains, you know, the aches and pains of the soul and emotions are, are as equally as valuable with this product as, you know, uh, as it could ever be. Absolutely. When you bring up the endocannabinoid system discovered back in the 80s, the truth of the matter is, you know, a lot of people have the nerve to say, well, I'll believe in cannabis when they've done the amount of research. It's like, I feel like reaching through a screen and smacking a person right across the face because the research has been done. You know, this has been funded by us. You know, the United States funded this research in Israel back in the 80s when the Shulam, it was like, what, 86, discovered the endocannabinoid system and discovered the fact that we had CB1, CB2 connectors or, or receptors in our brain and in our peripheral organs. Those receptors really are the key to our cellular homeostasis, which we've known now. This is not something I'm talking, I'm just saying something that the cannabis industry is saying. This is something that's been researched and talked about now since the 80s. So, you know, almost 50 years or almost 40 years, 40 something years now, almost 47, what, 40, no, 38 years, we've had this knowledge. And it's so good that there are companies, especially companies that are trying to put good efficacious products in the marketplace like yours who understand the value. And like I was saying, again, it has so many different uses, even from a human consumption standpoint. You know, and I've always known for me, again, from a jet lag standpoint, and I don't have to have the highest level of THC to get the relief. As a matter of fact, um, you know, I find that the relief in, from jet lag comes a little bit more for me using a higher 
broad spectrum. So a little lower THC and a lot more, you know, secondary cannabinoids. And that seems to literally clear rather than give me the brain fog. That's what clears the fog and actually helps me function during the day. So, you know, I just wanted to throw that out there. Let's talk a little bit about my friend. You know, there's a lot of people from my podcast, Let's Be Blunt, have not been introduced to you before. Let's talk about where you're from. Are you a native of Missouri? Uh, tell me a little bit about your background. Where'd you grow up? Sure. So I was born in Texas, uh, grew up in Kansas, which is like seems to be one of the states that's going to hold on to like have the title of last state to join the cannabis movement. Uh, you know, so uh, a large part of this, you know, came from being uh, you know, a Kansas resident with a friend of mine that lived in Kansas City, Missouri. And so all the opportunity when the 2018 farm bill started rolling out and I started understanding that, you know, like our government was actually starting to get semi-serious about cannabis. It really started to um, pique my interest. Uh, and then saw an opportunity when uh, some good friends of my uh, family called me up and said, hey, we're trying to pursue licenses in Missouri. Um, we know you're a smart business guy and we'd love to work with you and see if we could uh, uh, win some licenses. And this was like 2018, 2019. And we wrote 18 successful licenses in Missouri, which was, you know, most in the state and was, of course, an incredible feat. And, you know, the unique part of that is I was just at the time a uh, a consultant, you know, a hired guy to come in and, and, you know, work on a business plan competition. But then I went, wow, maybe there's some more opportunity here for someone like myself. I'm, I'm getting in early. Maybe there's an opportunity to go buy a license. And so um, I, I raised some capital, uh, got with some partners and friends of ours and bought a license and and brought a license to market under the name Franklin Stash House. And, and uh, now, yeah, so Franklin Stash House is an interesting name. So um, uh, my business partner and I, Ronald Rice, are sitting there going, what's a name that would be great for this business? That's something that we could all agree on, you know, no matter who you are, or what your background is, what's something we can all agree on. And we thought to ourselves, we all love, let's think about it, money and weed, Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, Stash House, Franklin Stash House, and the company was born. And we thought that had a good ring to it. So, uh, you know, having the hundred dollar bill on it kind of helps us, but you know, it's, uh, it's a, it's a good brand. We've enjoyed it. Well, you know, you said that uh, your family reached out to you because they recognized that you had entrepreneurial um, uh, expertise. Let's talk a little bit about that. What did you? What were you doing before they even reached out to you to ask you that made them say, hmm, I think this is the guy we ought to uh, look at when we try to start this in the business. What did you get into? Where did you go to school? Talk to me. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough that I had a, a father who was a sales uh, guy and then an entrepreneur and, and a very smart guy. Um, who built a business from, you know, he's kind of a rags to riches story, you know, grew up in St. Joseph, Missouri, you know, um, and, and, and gave me a, a wonderful life growing up and, you know, put me through some great education, KU for my undergrad, UMKC for my graduate. But, you know, all of that formal education, of course, helps me in entrepreneurship, but I've had an entrepreneurial bug, you know, since I was 16-ish years old. And a lot of people have known kind of my journey since, I was 16 and I finished college when I was uh, 20 years old. I got my MBA when I was 21. So I finished in two years, you know, and I've kind of been pursuing businesses ever since. And ultimately, um, I wound up developing a venture that was very well known internationally uh, called Nile Watches. And this was a company where we manufactured luxury watches right here in America with Swiss movements. And we were competing very well back in the time before Shinola was 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 out. They were a competitor, um, you know, uh, several other brands. And it was, a, it was it was a great business and, and then it didn't work out. And, you know, I've been, I'm an entrepreneur that's had the experience of what it's like to go build a dream and a vision and then, you know, lose it and lose it to bankruptcy and have to go through those experiences. And that's kind of where my cannabis journey actually starts is I wasn't a, 
Uh, you know, I'm not a, a, a 30 year pothead journey. Uh, that's not my story. Now, while I'm a daily consumer and, you know, uh, this is something to me that's just as much medicine as you discuss, you know, my journey didn't start until I had a business bankruptcy and I started questioning my value and, and worth in the world, you know, and you start looking and reflecting upon yourself and trying to heal from whatever traumas that you have. And cannabis became an outlet of that. And it was it, it, it convinced me so much in its powers that I started a whole business around it. You know, so it, it, it's been a, an incredible journey to get here. But I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, how did how did somebody call me and say, hey, we want you to be on the team? These people know my dad and they knew me since I was, you know, a little kid and I interned for more when I was younger. And, you know, they just kind of gave me an opportunity. We didn't know what was going to happen with it. But um, I've always been, you know, a, a self go-getter kind of guy and an entrepreneur to my blood and um, you know, and a lot wide experience and range that comes with with uh, uh, pursuing entrepreneurship for twenty plus years. Sure. Now you know that 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 uh, when the hemp bill passed, you entered this business in the hemp market. Correct. Let's talk a little bit about that's correct. The very first thing that the very first uh, ever cannabis related thing that I ever did was we were one of the first cultivators and researchers of um, of industrial hemp in the state of Kansas. And if we remember back to then, 2018, you know, Pat Roberts was a part of those bills. And so there's a few states like Kentucky and Kansas that got like first run access to really study this plant. And we did an indoor grow um, of hemp plants. And, you know, this was back before like CBD flower was real big and, and at least out in our region. And you know, um, it's still a very tough regulatory environment from the consumer standpoint, but they allowed you to produce it back then. And, you know, there really wasn't a lot of money if you couldn't sell it. You know, Kansas locks down their laws to where you could produce industrial hemp, but you just can't sell it anywhere in the state of Kansas. You got to ship it somewhere else, you know. And so that became a, a losing business model. And, you know, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I love to plant, but I got a, a really good opportunity to move from an indoor grow to a greenhouse grow, you know, work on research projects and, and really focus it from a medical side and learn how to report that back to the state government in a, in a way that was actually useful to them. So you could be a, a good steward of the license. Um, and, and it was great. It's kind of where we got our, our teeth cut into it. But, you know, um, the cannabis space in itself, especially with limited licenses like Missouri, is is far too appealing to not want to focus, you know, a lot large part of your attention and time on, especially when you can make real products and real innovation. But you were initially making real products in the hemp space, meaning, I guess, were you you weren't able to mm -hmm. sell your uh, hemp pre-rolls in Missouri? Uh, no, we couldn't sell them in Kansas, but we could in Missouri. So we actually, one of the first products that Franklin Stash House ever created was a um, hemp blunt. And this actually happened, it's a very interesting call. A guy that owned about 15 different um, retail chains, convenience stores in Kansas City called and said, hey, I heard of this brand named Legals. They're selling these hemp blunts, but they're not very good. I know you could make me something better. Why don't you come here and see what I'm talking about? And the guy's name is Babir Sultan with Fave Trip. And he said, come on down. And I, I went and looked at it and I went, wow, you, this guy's right. He found an opportunity. And you're right. I could make something better. And so we developed out and recognized that, like, there's a large part of culture that, like, if you think about it, has any rapper ever said, I want to go hang out and smoke a pre-roll? You know, like, it's a blunt. The idea of a blunt is actually something cultural. It's the idea of breaking down a Swisher or a Dutch or whatever that may be, shelling it out and filling it back up with weed. We've been doing that as a peaceful protest for the last 20 years. That's ingrained in cannabis culture. But there's very few companies that actually serve the blunt side of that. You know, like in, in, in cannabis, THC, you see a lot of paper pre-rolls. You don't see any dark papers that are slow burning, that are low smoke, that re resemble what it's like to smoke a tobacco-based blunt. And that's really where we got our start. We made these hemp blunts with fresh hemp bud, locally grown, um, started selling them in convenience stations. And we had, you know, I think a total of 11 convenience stores that were selling our product and we were doing really well. 
Um, and then we kind of saw the writing on the wall, the DHSS, our regulatory body, um, is getting very tight about cannabis distribution in the uh, non-THC sites of so CBD or any cannabinoids. They are locking it all down and trying to say that, you know, they're now controlling it. And so we went, look, if this is going to be a controlled market, we might as well just go get a license and pursue things, uh, you know, over in that space. But yeah, I mean, we, we just started out as a hemp brand, one of the very few that's managed to kind of like cross over into the THC space. Um, we're no longer in the CBD side because the regulatory environment's too murky when you play the two of those. Um, but, you know, that's exactly where we got our, our teeth cut. And a lot of people locally definitely know us from those days. And yeah, when you started off, did you think that you were going to transition from hemp to selling cannabis, THC cannabis, or did you really think you were going to stay in the hemp space? I really always believed, and, and when I met my business partner, other business partner, Andy Miller, who owns Guys and James Lemonade and, and whatnot, that's actually where our conversation got started, was we were going to have a hemp protein distributed in high bees throughout the city from a brand that we had called True State at the time. And, you know, um, it, it quite frankly, we wanted to be in both spaces. We had like a whole business model for that, but because of the regulatory environment, we had to shelve it for now. Um, but, you know, we'd love to if we were in a more national landscape. We believe in the value of CBD. I think, you know, you as well are one of the big proponents of like, we're not just chasing highest THC content. And that, that's what happens like an early market. But really, you know, once markets get established in patients, they need blends. They need full spectrums. They need, you know, every cannabinoid that they can get. Right. I mean, you're the you're the expert on that. That's probably one of the things that I think if I had to complain about this industry, that would be my biggest complaint that even when the information is sitting right in front of our providers noses, they still go after trying to see if they can get some COA with something 30 plus THC. And it's like, stop the stupid. Um, first off, you know, the industry is not even really truly paying attention to the true demographic that is keeping this industry's head above water. And that's like right now is baby boomers across the country. You know, when you go to, I don't care, I don't care what dispensary you go to and, and what state you go in, you know, you may see mm, 18 to 34 walking in and buying one or two blunts at a time and walking out the door. You'll see 55 year olds plus walking in and buying $150 worth of product and walking out the door. There's two different groups here. You know, one's coming in because they are, they consider themselves a wreck user, the others coming in because they know the value of the overall product and the spectrum of the product. I mean, you know, I think the the baby boomer is becoming more educated very, very quickly. In your in your opinion, how much do you think of the environment is um, baby boomers as a buyer? Because you bring up a really fair well, and valid point. You know, there's several underserved segments within the cannabis space, and one of them is the baby boomer category. And they are still underserved, but I will tell you, it's like, you know, last week I probably I visited five dispensaries um, in two-day period of time. Uh, really, I visited six in a, in a full grow in a three-day period of time. But, you know, I was in three dispensaries on one day and two dispensaries the next day. Um, the flow uh, while I was there it was pretty good in each one of the places I was at. And I will tell you that because they knew I was going to be there, my demo shows up. However, when I'm talking to the people who are the managers, they've said the exact same thing. You know, the baby boomers show up and a couple years beyond baby boomers, they show up. They have $100, $200 in their pocket. The younger demographic, and I'm not knocking the younger demographic, they show up because they just, you know, they don't have the same amount of disposable income. 
So during my visits, the age group is more running about 75, 25, 75% baby boomer, 25% other. When I'm not there, they probably run about 45% baby boomer, 55% other. And that's only because, and it's, I'm not saying this in any, you know, um, detrimental or aspersion way. Again, most of our dispensaries are all caught up in trying to get that kid through the door. And it's like, you know, you don't have to go after the highest THC user. You can go after those who, yeah. and you know, you're going to find that a lot of baby boomers aren't, unless they understand the, what I'm trying to do and what you've been trying to do, people like yourself have been trying to do, mixing some of the other monocannabinoids together, bringing down that THC level so that the experience isn't one that's overwhelming the first time or the fifth time. The baby boom is looking for that. They're not looking to walk in the door and not be able to function. They're not looking to walk in the door and being so high that they can't go do something. They want to continue to work. They want to feel good all day long. They want to have something that will help them feel good all day long. And then they also want you to explain it to them. You know, they're not just buying what you say. Give me some data that backs it up. Tell me where I can go find that data myself and I'll go look it up myself. That's how the baby boomer is. Very, very discerning audience. Yep. And that's what I think this industry is sadly sorely missing. Because one more thing with the baby boomers, sorry. I'm on my tirade right now, backing up my boys, but you know, my boys and girls. Preach, preach. I got to, my brother. I mean, <laughs> if you go across America looking in every single state that has passed a recreational bill and it's done been done so legislatively, look at their legislature and see who's sitting in those offices. Whether it be right or left, they're all baby boomers. Wow. You're absolutely right. Right, and that's it. Kansas. I mean, look, right. look at Kansas right now. I mean, the legislator there, it's a, it's a far older legislator than, uh, you know, may be favorable to the, um, you know, thing that right. is cannabis. And, and the new ones are coming in. You got a legislation probably now running most of the country about eh, 50, eh, 60 percent, 60, 65 percent baby boomer. And the rest is older. Well, those older people are the one who've been thwarting our ability to move cannabis forward. It's the baby boomer who remembers that when they were in high school, when they were in junior high school, they smoked a joint under the bleachers. And guess what? I'm still successful. Huh? So that's not that bad. You know, give people what they want. That's what's going on across America. And it's also a group of people who have now hit that age where, you know, the doctors are too ready to put them on 35, 40 different medications, 20 different medications that really are not necessary because we understand that cannabis can solve some of those problems. And so people are looking to be less medicated. And the discerning baby boomers, I think the one that's making the right decisions and right choices, they're the ones with the disposable income. They're the ones who are going to grow this industry into what it's going to be. Remember, I believe we are no further along in cannabis than, let's say, the Wright brothers when they were pushing that wooden plane down the hill. We ain't even begun to fight. They haven't even started this journey. This journey... And cannabis in another 20 years from now is going to be probably a four, five, six trillion dollar business. Not billion, trillion. We already know we hit $25 billion worth of legal sales in America in 2021. And that probably only equated to about 30% of the total amount of sales in the country. So if you put in the gray market and the black market, you're looking at, at a product that's selling probably 75 to $80 billion worth of product. There's nothing close to that in America. The only thing close to that is still liquor 
Cannabis has already outperformed cigarettes. We sold more cannabis in 2021 than we sold milk. Every grocery store across the country, every child eating cereal every morning, equated to about $18 billion worth of milk sales. <laughs> really? 2021? $25 billion plus worth of legal marijuana sold, or cannabis sold in America. That's more than all the energy drinks put together. That's more than, see, energy drinks, milk, lunch meat. Lunch meat! I'm sorry, I'm preaching to the choir, but you know, the, the, the industry is going to have to wake up. Now, I know, unfortunately, we're also caught up in a greed system in America from the government on down. So that's the reason why we have all these stupid draconian laws requesting so much in taxes from this industry that should not even be taxed this way. Well, I mean, you also bring up a valid point is to even though we've made a lot of progress as an industry and as a movement, there still is strong opposition, you know, uh, sure. uh, and I'm not I'm just labeling as an analyst, you know, um, some more far right uh, religious leaning organizations find it to be a demoralizing of America. And some of those people are very connected. And that's opposition that you f face at the political sphere you face in at the you know legislative sphere. And that's kind of, you know, that's going to there's a lot of opposition. There is, but that's, I think only that's, you know, if you go back, go back 20 years. When I first came out back in 20, 2001, I was looked at like I, I had every disease on the planet, but I was running across this country, sitting down before legislators across this country, explaining to them the virtues medically of cannabis and what it had done for me. Eyes open. Not just for me, but there were several of us that were out there doing it at the time. And that, you know, uh, uh, whole feeling of being out here trying to see if we could literally change hearts and minds, it was steady. There were so many people out there trying their best to influence our local legislators, our national legislators. And in the last five, six, seven years, everybody's been too caught up in what can I do for myself in this industry rather than trying to lift the whole industry up. So the advocacy that was going on way back then, I don't see that today. I don't see that at all. I don't see groups going down and knocking on every door of these daggone congressmen who are taking advantage of the tax dollars that their states are reaping from the cannabis industry. I don't see any specials on the air. I don't see anybody going out and, you know, I can remember, like, go back 10 years and you'll remember that that all the CNN, Foxes, MSNBCs, all these guys were always covering cannabis at least once a week. You don't hear them say a word about it these days. So this industry is going to have to figure out a way, number one, to come together and understand that we've got trillions of dollars that are left on the table. We can get those if we all came together right now made a trade union, and then move that forward the same way the farmer does, the same way that anybody else does. Go down there and lobby Congress and let them know it's time to start figuring out a way to make this a successful industry so that it can make this country more successful. But go ahead. You had a question for me, though, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a very interesting story as you tell all of this. You know, it's I'm curious, what is it about cannabis or this industry that's driven you to go literally city by city? 
to campaign to move forward legislation for cities that you don't even live in? You know, like what's that journey? What what drives you? What's the passion behind that? Well, you know, I mean, a lot of maybe you don't know this and, and I'll take you back on memory lane. But way back in 2000, I got diagnosed with MS. And from 2000 to about 2001 and a half, I, I literally almost became one of those statistics in opioid addiction before we even started talking about it. The country wasn't even facing the fact that we were in an in a opioid crisis back in 2001. We didn't start admitting the opioid crisis until about 2011. And still now today, we're not even admitting to the fact that that crisis is bigger than it was before, pan, before the pandemic. We're not even talking about it anymore. It's almost like one over everybody's head. So back in 2000, when I got diagnosed with MS, you know, the doctors, their only course of action was to addict people to, you know, these nefarious substances that the pharmaceutical industry was coming up with, knowing that they were going to addict us. And I had a doctor who back in 2001 said to me, I'm done, dude. I'm not writing you any more prescriptions. I know what you're doing. I know you were doctor shopping to get as many of these things as you can. I'm not going to do it anymore. And I'm going to put your name. I'm going to submit your name to you know, the DEA and let them know to keep an eye on you because you're getting too much of this stuff. And stop. You're going to kill yourself. However, I heard of this stuff called, I don't know, that, that marijuana stuff where, you know, there's some version of it. I don't know, CBCB, some of that. I don't know what you look it up. You're a smart guy. And this is what the doctor said to me in 2001. You look it up, but I'll bet you, you might be able to find some relief from that because I have some other patients who have said that they found relief from that. I started doing my research back in 2001 and I never looked back. And once I figured that out, stopped using the opioids, I dumped, well, I dumped probably a thousand um, back then. It was precursors to Oxycontin, something called Tawin and another drug. I won't even give the names out because I don't want the pharmaceutical industry coming after me, but I dumped a whole bunch of stuff down the toilet and said, I'm done. Threw it away. You know, grab some cannabis. And back in 2001, 2002, I was looking for high CBD plants back then before anybody even knew what it was about. And as soon as I started to realize that it was something that could help me, I feel like almost it was almost criminal. Why would I keep this to myself? So I need to help others. And you know, I've written about it in a couple of books. You can go back to one of my earliest books back in you know, 2002. I was talking about back then how I did an open letter to the president about cannabis and about the fact that this was an alternative to addicting us to these other harshest drug, harsher drugs. So I feel very strongly about, you know, we all have a responsibility. You know, we're just not here to pass through. We have a, a responsibility to our fellow man. If you learn something that helps, that works for you, and you don't share that with others how dare you you know what i mean i think you bring up a really very interesting valid point to touch on there is the the morality behind this plant this product in this industry and i think you, we absolutely agree that there's been a sense of greed and nefarious activity that's been in cannabis because it's a green rush you know and it really leaves behind the people that matter which is patients which is right. the core people that are continuing to spend dollars on this for whatever form of relief they are and you know I used, to, I used to be so angry with the fact that when I go to conferences and I go see things and I hear all these people speak, they forget to even think about those people who were arrested on gurneys in their homes back, you know, 2000, 2001, 2, 3, 4, across America. People who were, who were rolled out with handcuffs on them on a fucking, excuse me, a hospital bed and an IV coming out of them just because they had four or five plants in their backyard. 
this is that's where this industry's back was built on. And for this industry to forget that, how how really how really honestly, you know, I, I I have very little respect for those that I run into in this business who don't want to remember where we came from. So well, you know, I think the general trend and and where I'm seeing it kind of make gives me a lot of hope is there's people like yourself and many others out there that view a, a capitalism in a new way. I mean, I like to call it new world capitalism. You know, I mean, it's a different way where you're actually concerned about the impact of where you're putting your dollars, how you're running your business, how you're paying your employees, what you're doing with your product. You yep. know, and, but uh, 10 years ago, I for speaking like that, I would have been called a, a a dumb millennial that's just off on his left wing views, right? And nowadays, wow, that, you know, paying someone a living wage and paying for their health care and, you know, giving a good product just sounds like good business. And, you know, sometimes when you're a pioneer like yourself, you know, you're going to be misjudged and miscalculated early on until the results come. And that's just kind of the nature of being an entrepreneur, which clearly yep. you are. And, you know, we've had experience doing, but, you know, that's, that's kind of entrepreneurship is kind of interweaved into the cannabis journey, whether you're a OG dealer or you're a legal market person, you know, entrepreneurship yeah. is, is definitely universal. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, I mean, I, I'm just so glad that, you know, people like yourself now are in an industry where you, you know, that you're making a difference. You are providing product that, you know, um, uh, your consumers, I'm sure, give you feedback to every single time you, you know, put a new skew on a shelf. They let you I know mean, that's, the, yeah, that's what I missed. That's exactly, you know, we, we kind of talked about this when we were in, in Miami, but it's, you know, the, the concept of like, how do you do good in this business? You got to listen to your customer. I, and I love when they interview Jeff Bezos and they like ask him like, why are you so successful at Amazon? And he like jokingly says, but it's true. You know, he's obsessed with the customer, what the customer wants, how they want it. And when you do that and you actually listen to your customer and you provide them some type of mechanism to be heard and you can translate that into a product, I mean, that's how you win. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, that's product development is developing what consumers want. And in cannabis, that could change very quickly. You know, the, the really trends mean, change I, very fast. I've said this all along. One of, the, one of the other problems with this industry is that, again, we stagnate. You know, we make one or two things and then people sit back and rest on their laurels. You know, innovation is how we can, we will literally not stagnate. Without innovation, you do stagnate. So, you know, I, I applaud what you're doing and constantly looking to put new SKUs on the shelves. And to offer the consumer, you know, um, consumer-centric products that they've already asked for. And there's enough of them out there. And so, you know, I'm excited about maybe the opportunity of us even getting together and talking about some of this and working through some of this and introducing some new SKUs in your marketplace there. Because so I think that... yeah. I think Missouri's a, a very exciting market for these things. You know, um, I think a, a testament kind of wrapping together some of the multiple things you said is Franklin Stash House produces and works with brands that are uh, typically more commercial than a lot of people would see before. And by commercial, I mean, you know, like we're working with James Lemonade. That's a 40-year-old brand. We're working with Guy's Chips. That's an 80-year-old brand, right? And we're working with all these things that didn't exist in cannabis because we're providing a mechanism for these companies that's so professional from a distribution standpoint, a payment standpoint, a legality standpoint, that they're now starting to get interested to come over in this category, right? And you know that's that's a very different business model to be a co-manufacturer or a white labeler and have your own brands. But in a state like Missouri, I just think that it's a, a state with very few brands. 
And I think there's plenty enough room for more brands. And I believe that Franklin's can be one of those companies that works with a whole multitude of companies, whether that be CPG or CBD brands that are wanting to cross over into the space to develop real products. Like that's the way it should be. You go to Illinois, and you're never going to find that, right? You're only going to find six, seven people control everything. And it's only their brands that they'll produce. And they have no interest in producing anything that the people actually want you know, from a, from a voicing standpoint. And that's kind of where I think we could capture, you know, it's a local play. We're a smaller business than a lot of these entities, but we're real people. And I think that's, what's interesting about like these kind of type conversations. I think long-term that individuals that are like ourselves, entrepreneurial long-term players that stay true to the fundamentals of business in five years, by 2030, a lot of these bad actors are going to get, you know, completely wiped out. Wait until something like, and I don't mean to get too much off onto the to the the mental space here, but wait until like an AI robot comes out for uh, metric compliance and right. watch what happens when state by state, those types of things roll out. You know, these bad actors, these bad things will eventually go away in my belief by technology. Um, but, you know, our industry has a lot of work to do. And we, as you said, you nail, hit the nail on the head. We have a lot of work to do. This is just the start. It isn't even federally decriminalized yet, guys. So right. there's still more work to do that we all got to put forward to get products out there. And there's so much space and equal space on the playing field for so many. You just have to get there and be willing to play, I'd say, well together. You know what I mean? And I say that in the sense that, you know, there's going to be the players that are going to be putting product on the marketplace that you know are not healthy products for the consumer and the consumer is going to start looking at the space and starting to ask for how can you make it healthier in any way, shape or form. And again, innovation stops you from stagnating. And so as long as you continue to innovate, the people you build it, they will come. Talk a little bit about the process of raising capital for this business. I mean, it's got to be tough. And in a market like Missouri, I would bet you extremely tough. Uh, sure. You know, um, uh, cannabis is booming. So uh, um, it is, you know, as Missouri cannabis, you know, we're doing like 100 to $150 million a month in the state. So it's a multi-billion dollar state with limited licenses. So there is a little bit of the advantage that you're offering when we went to raise capital. You know, we bought one singular license, uh, a manufacturing infused products license, extraction license. Uh, that allows us to buy bud and convert it into anything. And, you know, we went to go raise capital. And I mean, I, I probably had easily 80 to 100 conversations with VCs, bankers, you know, every option that you could find. We uh, had no interest in any form of debt financing. Um, I was trying to build a business model that I got in as cheap as possible and let my cash flow drive the expansion and growth of my business. And so, you know, we raised $2 million in total. Um, back in January of 2022, bought a license, built it out, turned it online, hired 12 employees, and got over 30 SKUs into the market in less than nine months. And then we were able to just get into market right before REC, and then it rolled into the REC market. And when the REC market hit, it was like I was never going to need to raise probably another dollar again. Uh, you know, we're in a cash flowing scenario, but we built our, our business differently. There are a lot of operators that choose to build the Taj Mahal and, you know, uh, raise $10 million in debt. And then when that loan payment can't hit or something gets called, it messes your business up. And so I'm trying to build a small, lean, nimble, uh, but highly profitable business. And raising capital is a challenge. It's, you know, um, you got to have every incentive that you can for an investor in this scenario. But it compared to some other businesses, you know, it's been easier um, Kansas City has really been a hot spot for investment capital in Missouri. I mean, St. Louis, a lot of people think, um, you know, by being at the city that it is, it's somehow more influential. But, uh, you know, when I go look at numbers, Kansas City dominates. And I think it's largely because, you know, we're sitting on the border with Kansas. And so 
Um, there's a lot of interest, you know, there's green rush that breeds excitement, but um, you know, it's a challenge, you know, I'm not trying to raise $80 million next week. You know, I mean, it was 2 million bucks that I had to raise a year ago. Right. And uh, it's been encouraging, but people really want to see performance. And fortunately we've been a company that's performed. We've got like real numbers that we're like transparent to share with investors. And, you know, it's just a, a kind of a, you know, a, a, a business model for us to be transparent with the people we're raising capital with and show us our track record. And it's, it's been pretty well, but you know, it's challenging for anybody. It's definitely at the higher sphere of mental frequency for business, you know, challenges every aspect of me from legal to compliance, to accounting, to business strategy, you know, it's to be in that space and raise capital here is um, definitely uh, taxing and demanding. And the licensing process, how hard was it to get your you, the single license was, or your license now been expanded? What? Okay, so in Missouri, you're, there's a set amount of licenses, and I'm approximating about 70 cultivation, 100 manufacturing, and about 200 dispensary. Now, they're not issuing any new licenses unless they come off of appeals, and those are very rare. And so you're in a, in a state of moratorium. So you're like, Mike, how did you get a license? Well, not all operators are either prepared to turn their facility online, maybe something changed, maybe their capital didn't come through, and they just want to sell a license. You know, there's a rate at which you could sell the paper license. And so we bought a paper license. We spent approximately $350,000 on it. It's one of the most affordable manufacturing licenses that we've heard bought in the state. And the rest of the capital went to buy the facility, build it all out and whatnot. But the licensing process, then you have to buy it. You then have to go through like over a year long approval process from the state where they come analyze every single investor in your company because they want to vet that no one in there is part of a criminal network, you know, uh, been a charge for a violent crime. They've got certain standards that they want for ownership in this industry. And, you know, it, you go through that process and it's uh, extremely time consuming. Um, you know, fortunately, my wife, who's also our VP of, um, of, of compliance at Franklin's, has worked with the DHSS. She's a pharmacist. So, you know, she's had tons of experience, um, you know, working with the DHSS, providing reports, uh, you know, providing SOPs. And it's all worked out, uh, you know, very well for us in, in, in that space because, you know, we're just been well prepared and, and, you know, we're quick to learn and, you know, uh, trying to stay true to the fundamentals and keep doing what we're doing. So, so Michael, now, where do you think you're headed? I mean, what do you, what do you see? Uh, give me your next two year plan. Well, you know, uh, we've had a, a lot of success in Missouri um, and kind of our, our original plan was always to develop out a model in Missouri and kind of a home base and then hit multi-state. And we've got a model for going multi-state. And one of those first states we'll be going to is Washington State. And we've got a roadmap over the next two years of 12 states that we're going to be, you know, developing our products out in and working with local products in each state. And so, you know, the future for us is, you know, we're really heavy in the manufacturing. You may purchase a cultivation license to get into flower in Missouri. That's not really our bread and butter. Our bread and butter is product development, brands, you know, quality products. And to do that, that's a manufacturing license. And so you know, we'll be working with people all over the country. And, you know, outside of Missouri, you know, there's just going to be really exciting. Yes, while we'll be bringing James Lemonade and Una Familia and a bunch of other brands, we want to find what is the James Lemonade of Seattle and what is, you know, what are those brands that are local that are underserved that haven't had a voice before? And let's give them a voice and an outlet to produce exceptionally quality products. When you go into another market, are you looking to get another processing license? 
or whatever they um, at the time? Yeah, I mean, I'm an entrepreneur, so I, I'm I'm never one to say no to an opportunity. But um, you know, kind of our business model is I've watched people before go buy licenses, and then you know it takes you 18 months to get a, a facility online, and so you don't know what the market's like in 18 months. And so, you know, I'm looking for co-manufacturing brand partnerships and then the markets that get developed. I, I could see that, you know, there's an opportunity for us to just put our equipment, our team and, you know, go build that out locally. But I'm always very cautious because I've just watched too many people buy, get too hungry, you know, and go spend a couple million bucks on a license and then a market changes. And so, right. you know, it's a, it's a unique business model, but absolutely we're, we're we think that we have a. Um, you know, not only a set of brands and a, and a process, but like actual innovation to how we make products from both a quality standpoint that's that's going to be at a standard when we federally decriminalize and the FDA takes us all over. A lot of people aren't going to have a clue what to do. And, you know, that's well, what we're going to position ourselves into. Now, that one right there, I, I agree with you. When the FDA or when the government finally does figure out what they want to do in this, it's going to make things so much different. Because it's going to take at least two to three years for the Fed to get all the individual states to get on the same page. I mean, you look at what's going on in, let's say, Georgia. Georgia right now, which has no flour and no smoke oil, but has other products that you can introduce, but no edible. Ah, no edible. What do you mean by all that? They're allowing tincture, caplets, pills, possibly gum, maybe. That has not been approved yet. But when you just look at the first four, and salves and creams, the first three... The Fed's going to have to step in and say, well, you know, okay, you guys are wrong about this whole thing. You're going to have to allow for some sort of ingestible, smokable, or vaporable, and then you're going to have pushback from the states. But hey, it's, it's, this is going to be, a, I think we're going to be mired in a muck of, of regulatory bullshit for at least five years. I, I, I uh, think that's a fair analysis. Okay. And I mean, now how do your Missouri cannabis regulations compare to some of the other states? Are they better? Are they worse? Do you think you're going to run into more roadblocks when you get to other places or what? Well, I mean, every, of course, as you know, every state's different. Um, and I think both on my personal analysis and what like people have told me from that have come from the West Coast and, and East Coast and multiple states is Missouri's very middle of the road. You know, I mean, they gave enough licenses to be able to produce to create a multi-billion dollar market, but not enough that everyone can participate. The standards are so high that it requires investment capital to get into this. You know, you can't build this business just on $50,000. You know, it requires millions to be in it in Missouri. So there is a, a large barometer to, uh, to entry point. We are regulated by the um, Health and Senior Services, which is now called the DCR, which means that you're under a health department review rather than an alcohol or tobacco type of group, um, which is it's, uh, it's uh, always focused on public safety. And so what I think you're going to find out of Missouri is it's an incredibly well-run economic state, but it's going to be you know a, a challenge and difficult as you know we get larger and and things move along and, you know, legislation starts to change because, you know, they're very interested in public safety. So that means, you know, more regulation on labeling and packaging, more, you know, I don't mind. I quite frankly, I'm okay anytime you level the playing field and you want to add more regulation and make the product safer and whatnot. But when you want to add regulation and additional interpretation, which is not pro-economy, which is not pro-consumer, which is pro-anything else, you know, uh, whether it's political interest or anything else, that's where I start to have issue with it. You know, this is a product and, a, and a, an economy that has to work well, and we need to be working towards that. And so in Missouri, I've got a lot of faith in it. I wouldn't be deep, as deeply invested. But what I think I'll find when I go to other states is that it's so dynamic that, you know, it's going to, ch- I mean, it changes. You know, Missouri is great today, but 
what happens if we get a new group of legislators in and they open up all the licenses and, you know, the market gets flooded, you know, I mean, like that's a real concern. But, you know, um, Missouri is politically integrated in the sense that, like, there's a lot of players from the industry that have a voice that have, you know, trying to been a, a, educating the DCR and the DHSS about, you know, what works and whatnot. And I think that relationship, the intergovernment relationship has worked pretty well. Um, you know, I'd love to, of course, see more as an entrepreneur and brand person, I'd love to see some more relaxation on on some rules. But uh, from a DHSS perspective, you know, they've been pretty reasonable. And, you know, I think it's going to be more reasonable as this gets developed out. And, you know, we're fortunate we don't have like an excise tax. So it's not like anything's over or underfunded, um, but it's pretty well balanced. And I, I mean, quite frankly, it's um, it's a good market. I can't say that like it's like the top one or two by dollar volume in the nation, but it is a, a billion dollar plus industry. That's excellent. Well, Franklin's stash house, I'm telling you, uh, people wanted to go and get more information. Where would they go? Uh, if you want to learn more about Franklin stash house, you can visit us on Instagram at Franklin stash house or online at Franklin stash house.com. Excellent. Well, my friend, thank you so much for being a part of the show today. Thanks for sharing your knowledge. I, I can't wait till we have an opportunity to actually sit down and start talking and playing and, so I'm looking forward to it. I hope I can be of some, some help to you and hope that we, we can find a synergistic way to, to work together. Likewise. I appreciate you having me on. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, if you ever want to hang out and have a smoke session, talk some more, please let me know. We, it, oh, enjoy no. It. no, it stands a butts. I'd love to bring you down some of my products so you can even test it out yourself. This sounds right? great. Sounds like a, it's a language exchange for weed products, right? There you go, my friend. All right. You be well. Thanks Take care you as well. Thank you so much again. And thank you for tuning into this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.